Chapter 10 of The Mystery of Mary by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Dunham slept very little that night. His soul was hovering between joy and anxiety. Almost he was inclined to find some way to send her word about the man he had seen lingering about the place, and yet perhaps it was foolish. He had doubtless been to call on the cook, and there might be no connection whatever between what Dunham had heard and seen and the lonely girl. Next day, with careful hands, the girl made herself neat and trim with the few materials she had at hand. Her own fine garments that had lain carefully wrapped and hidden ever since she had gone into service were brought forth, and the coarse ones with which she had provided herself against suspicion were laid aside. If anyone came into her room while she was gone, he would find no fine French embroidery to tell tales. Also she wished to feel as much like herself as possible, and she could never feel quite that in her cheap outfit. True, she had no finer outer garments than a cheap black flannel skirt and coat, which she had bought with the first money she could spare, but they were warm and answered for what she had needed. She had not bought a hat, and had nothing now to wear upon her head, but the black felt that belonged to the man she was going to meet. She looked at herself pityingly in the tiny mirror, and wondered if the young man would understand and forgive. It was all she had, anyway, and there would be no time to go to the store and buy another before the appointed hour, for the family had brought unexpected company to a late lunch, and kept her far beyond her hour for going out. She looked down dubiously at her shabby shoes, their delicate kid now cracked and worn. Her hands were covered by a pair of cheap black silk gloves. It was the first time that she had noticed these things so keenly, but now it seemed to her most embarrassing to go thus to meet the man who had helped her. She gathered her little hoard of money to take with her, and cast one look back over the cheerless room, with a great longing to bid it farewell forever, and go back to the world where she belonged. Yet she realized that it was a quiet refuge for her from the world that she must hereafter face. Then she closed her door, went down the stairs and out into the street, like any other servant on her afternoon out, walking away to meet whatever crisis might arise. She had not dared to speculate much about the subject of the coming interview. It was likely he wanted to inquire about her comfort, and perhaps offer material aid. She would not accept it, of course, but it would be a comfort to know that someone cared. She longed inexpressibly for this interview, just because he had been kind, and because he belonged to that world from which she had come. He would keep her secret. He had true eyes. She did not notice soft padded feet that came wobbling down the street after her, and she only drew a little further out toward the curbing when a blear-eyed red face peered into hers as she stood waiting for the car. She did not notice the shabby man who boarded the car after she was seated. Tryon Dunham stood in the great stone doorway, watching keenly the passing throng. He saw the girl at once as she got out of the car, but he did not notice the man in the baggy coat, who lumbered after her and watched with wondering scrutiny as Dunham came forward, lifted his hat, and took her hand respectfully. 
Here was an element he did not understand. He stood staring, puzzled, as they disappeared into the great building, then planted himself in a convenient place to watch until his charge should come out again. This was perhaps a gentleman who had come to engage her to work for him. She might be thinking of changing her place. He must be on the alert. Dunham placed two chairs in the far corner of the inner parlor, where they were practically alone, save for an occasional passer through the hall. He put the girl into the most comfortable one, and then went to draw down the shade, to shut a sharp ray of afternoon sunlight from her eyes. She sat there and looked down upon her shabby shoes, her cheap gloves, her coarse garments, and honored him for the honor he was giving her in this attire. She had learned by sharp experience that such respect to one in her station was not common. As he came back, he stood a moment looking down upon her. She saw his eye rest with recognition upon the hat she wore, and her pale cheeks turned pink. "'I don't know what you will think of my keeping this,' she said shyly, putting her hand to the hat. "'But it seemed really necessary at the time.' and I haven't dared spend the money for a new one yet. I thought perhaps you would forgive me and let me pay you for it some time later. Don't speak of it, he broke in in a low voice. I am so glad you could use it at all. It would have been a comfort to me if I had known where it was. I had not even missed it, because at this time of year I have very little use for it. It is my traveling hat." He looked at her again as though the sight of her was good to him, and his gaze made her quite forget the words she had planned to say. "'I am so glad I have found you,' he went on. "'You have not been out of my thoughts since I left you that night on the train. I have blamed myself over and over again for having gone then. I should have found some way to stand by you. I have not had one easy moment since I saw you last.' His tone was so intense that she could not interrupt him. She could only sit and listen in wonder, half-trembling, to the low-spoken torrent of feeling that he expressed. She tried to protest, but the look in his face stopped her. He went on with an earnestness that would not be turned aside from its purpose. "'I came to Chicago that I might search for you. I could not stand the suspense any longer.' I have been looking for you in every way I could think of, without openly searching, for that I dared not do lest I might jeopardize your safety. I was almost in despair when I went to dine with Mr. Phillips last evening. I felt I could not go home without knowing at least that you were safe, and now that I have found you, I cannot leave you until I know at least that you have no further need for help. She summoned her courage now, and she spoke in a voice full of feeling. Oh, you must not feel that way. You helped me just when I did not know what to do, and put me in the way of helping myself. I shall never cease to thank you for your kindness to an utter stranger. And now I am doing very well. She tried to smile, but the tears came unbidden instead. You poor child! His tone was full of something deeper than compassion, and his eyes spoke volumes. Do you suppose I think you are doing well when I see you wearing the garb of a menial and working for people to whom you are far superior? P. 
people who buy all the rights of education and refinement ought to be in the kitchen serving you? It was the safest thing I could do, and really the only thing I could get to do at once, she tried to explain. I'm doing it better every day. I have no doubt. You can be an artist at serving as well as anything else if you try. But now that is all over, I am going to take care of you. There is no use in protesting. If I may not do it in one way, I will in another. There is one question I must ask first, and I hope you will trust me enough to answer it. Is there any other, any other man who has the right to care for you, and is unable or unwilling to do it? She looked up at him, her large eyes still shining with tears, and shuddered slightly. Oh, no, she said. Oh, no, I thank God there is not. My dear uncle has been dead for four years, and there has never been anyone else who cared since father died. He looked at her, a great light beginning to come into his face, but she did not understand and turned her head to hide the tears. Then I am going to tell you something, he said, his tone growing lower, yet clear enough for her to hear every word distinctly. A tall, oldish girl with a discontented upper lip stalked through the hall, glanced in at the door, and sniffed significantly, but they did not see her. A short, baggy-coated man outside hovered anxiously around the building and passed the very window of that room, but the shade opposite them was down and they did not know. The low, pleasant voice went on. I have come to care a great deal for you since I first saw you, and I want you to give me the right to care for you always and protect you against the whole world. She looked up, wondering. What do you mean? I mean that I love you, and I want to make you my wife. Then I can defy the whole world, if need be, and put you where you ought to be. Oh, she breathed softly. Wait, please, he pleaded, laying his hand gently on her little trembling one. Don't say anything until I have finished. I know, of course, that this will be startling to you. You have been brought up to feel that such things must be more carefully and deliberately done. I do not want you to feel that this is the only way I can help you, either. If you are not willing to be my wife, I will find some other plan. But this is the best way, if it isn't too hard on you, for I love you as I never dreamed that I could love a woman. The only question is whether you can put up with me until I can teach you to love me a little. She lifted eloquent eyes to his face. Oh, it is not that she stammered, a rosy light flooding cheek and brow. It is not that at all, but you know nothing about me. If you knew, you would very likely think as others do, and— Then do not tell me anything about yourself if it will trouble you. I do not care what others think. If you have poisoned a husband, I should know that he needed poisoning, and anyway I should love you and stand by you. I have not done anything wrong, she said gravely. Then if you have done nothing wrong, we will prove it to the world, or if we cannot prove it, we will fly to some desert island and live there in peace and love. That is the way I feel about you. 
I know that you are good and true and lovely. Anyone might as well try to prove to me that you were crazy as that you had done wrong in any way. Her face grew strangely white. Well, suppose I was crazy. Then I would take you and cherish you and try to cure you, and if that could not be done, I should help you to bear it. Oh, you are wonderful, she breathed, the light of a great love growing in her eyes. The bare, prosaic walls stood stolidly about them, indifferent to romance or tragedy that was being wrought out within its walls. The whirl and hum of the city without, the grime and soil of the city within, were alike forgotten by these two as their hearts throbbed in the harmony of a great passion. "'Do you think you could learn to love me?' said the man's voice, with the sweetness of the love-song of the ages in its tone. "'I love you now,' said the girl's low voice. "'I think I have loved you from the beginning.' though I never dared to think of it in that way. But it would not be right for me to become your wife when you know practically nothing about me. Have you forgotten that you know nothing of me? Oh, I do know something about you, she said shyly. Remember that I have dined with your friends. I could not help seeing that they were good people, especially that delightful old man, the judge. He looked startlingly like my dear father. I saw how they all honored and loved you. And then what you have done for me, and the way that you treated an utterly defenseless stranger, were equal to years of mere acquaintance. I feel that I know a great deal about you. He smiled. Thank you, he said. But I have not forgotten that something more is due you than that slight knowledge of me. And before I came out here, I went to the pastor of the church of which my mother is a member, in which I have always attended, and asked him to write me a letter. He is so widely known that I felt it would be an introduction for me. He laid an open letter in her lap, and glancing down, she saw that it was signed by the name of one of the best-known pulpit orators in the land, and that it spoke in highest terms of the young man whom it named as my well-loved friend. It is also your right to know that I have always tried to live a pure and honorable life. I have never told any woman but you that I loved her, except an elderly cousin with whom I thought I was in love when I was nineteen. She cured me of it by laughing at me, and I have been heart-whole ever since. She raised her eyes from reading the letter. You have all these, and I have nothing. She spread out her hands helplessly. It must seem strange to you that I am in this situation. It does to me. It is awful. She put her hands over her eyes and shuddered. It is to save you from it all that I have come. He leaned over and spoke tenderly. Darling. Oh, wait! She caught her breath as if it hurt her, and put out her hand to stop him. Wait. You must not say any more until I have told you all about it. Perhaps when I have told you, you will think about me as others do, and I shall have to run from you. Can you not trust me? He reproached her. Oh, yes, I can trust you, 
but you may no longer trust me, and that I cannot bear. I promise you solemnly that I will believe every word you say. Ah, but you will think I do not know, and that it is your duty to give me into the hands of my enemies. That I most solemnly vow I will never do, he said earnestly. You need not fear to tell me anything. But listen, tell me this one thing. In the eyes of God, is there any reason, physical, mental, or spiritual, why you should not become my wife? She looked at him clearly in the eyes. None at all. Then I am satisfied to take you without hearing your story until afterwards. But I am not satisfied. If I am to see distrust come into your eyes, it must be now, not afterwards. Then tell it quickly. He put out his hand and took hers firmly into his own, as if to help her in her story. End of chapter 10